Today we are continuing with our study through the book of Romans by picking up at chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. Romans 6, 11 through 14. That passage is found on page 604, or 943 in the Bibles that are provided for you. So I encourage you to get a copy of God's Word open and in front of you because we're just going to work our way through these verses and hear what it is that God is saying to us on this occasion by His Word and Spirit. Let me read Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, and then I will read down through verse 14, and that is our text. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Justified people fight against sin and fight for holiness. Those whom God reconciles to himself, those whom God justifies, They have a desire to be holy because they've been reconciled, because they've been justified. And they have a desire to be done with sin. Paul is anxious to make this point at this place in his letter because he knows that there are people who will distort what he has been teaching up to this point. He knows that there are people who will hear what he has previously written about justification being by God's grace plus nothing, through faith plus nothing, in Jesus Christ plus nothing, and we'll conclude, okay then, it must be all right if we go on in our sin. In chapter 4 verse 5, he said God's the God who justifies the ungodly. And in chapter 3 verse 28, he says that He does this out of sheer grace without any regard to what you do or don't do. And so he knows that people who hear this, some of them might begin to think, well, if it doesn't matter what we do, then what's a little sin? I mean, what's the big deal? Certainly a person can experience this justification that Paul writes about by grace and go on living in sin. That way of thinking is a distortion of what the scripture teaches about justification by grace through faith in Jesus. And Paul anticipates that distortion and he wants to knock it in the head and he takes this sixth chapter in order to do so. After spending the better part of the first five chapters explaining how God justifies sinners on the basis of what Jesus has done and nothing else, Explaining that God looks at what Jesus has accomplished in his life of obedience to God's commandments. In his death on the cross to pay for sin. In his resurrection from the dead. And then credits what Jesus has once and for all time done to everyone who trusts in Jesus. Paul knows that some people will look at that and think, well, we can live however we want to. But Paul is very, very concerned to show, to prove that no, this teaching of justification, it doesn't lead to nominalism. 
It doesn't lead to licentiousness. It doesn't lead to you concluding, oh, well, I guess I can live however I want to. I can be spiritually apathetic. I can be spiritually indifferent. I can go on in sin. In order for us to understand the point that Paul makes in our passage that's before us this morning, we need to go back to the first couple of verses in Romans chapter 6 and see how he sets up his argument. He does it by anticipating an extreme distortion of the very question that it always arises when you understand justification by grace through faith alone. So look at verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And notice how he answers it. By no means. He couldn't have used stronger language. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then establishing that point, he begins to build an argument to show why this idea is absolutely incompatible with biblical, with true Christianity. Justification by grace through faith in Christ can never lead to a life of continuing in sin. If you don't remember anything else I say today, please remember that point. On the contrary to that misguided way of thinking, justified people fight against sin and fight for holiness. That's the point. Of Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, our text this morning. Now, these verses of our text can be broken down into three point, points. We are instructed about thinking, we're instructed about doing, and we're instructed about trusting. If you look at verse 11, we have a command to think rightly. And then in verses 12 and 13, we are told to engage actively. And then in verse 14, we are given a reason and encouragement for these things by being encouraged to trust simply. So let's look at this passage under those three headings. Look at verse 11 where Paul says, we must think rightly. That verse says, so you also, which also, so you also, the word so is a conclusion, also reverts right back to what he's just written. So even before we go Further, we need to be reminded of verses 9 and 10. Look at those two verses where he's establishing what we know has happened of Jesus. It's true of him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life he lives, he lives to God. So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What is the specific command here? We're commanded to consider. Isn't that interesting? It's not go do this or stop doing that. It's think. Consider. The command is for us to engage our minds. To use our God-given reason in the light of what God has revealed. Now it's fascinating to know that this word translated for us to consider, it's the first command that's found in the book of Romans. It's the first imperative verb. Remember a few weeks ago, we spent a lot of time talking about the differences between indicative sentences and 
imperative sentences. Indicative sentences just describe the way things are. They describe reality. They make statements. But imperative sentences carry an obligation. Well, this is the first statement of explicit obligation that Paul uses in this letter. Prior to this, he's been teaching. He's been laying a doctrinal foundation. He's been saying, this is true. This is false. This is right. This is wrong. This is good. This is bad. And now then, he's beginning to bring it to a pointed application. This word to consider, it's one of the most important words in the New Testament. It's certainly one of the most important words in the Apostle Paul. It's found 40 times in the New Testament. 36 of those times, Paul uses it. 19 of those 36 times are in this book of Romans. In fact, we've already seen this word multiple times before now. This is a word of commerce. It's a word of accounting. It's a word that sometimes is translated to impute, to accredit something, to calculate, to reckon. Paul has used this word in his explanation of justification. So if you just flip back to Romans chapter 4, look at verses 3 through 6. Let me just read them to you. And you'll see this word occurring four times in those verses. What does the scripture say? Romans 4, 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. God considered it righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So you put in a full day's work, you expect a full day's pay, and that full day's pay is counted to you as your wage, not as a gift. Verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. God credits, he calculates that and says this is with accordance with righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. The, the idea behind this word is to acknowledge, to count on, to believe and assert, to consider that which is actually true. It's not make-believe. It's not pretend. It's not a mind game. You know, when you go to a bank and you walk up and talk to one of the tellers that's ready to help you and you say, how much money do I have in my account? Well, they get on their computer and they look at certain facts and figures and then they, having considered what's there, report it to you. They're getting on the computer and finding all the information doesn't put money in your account, does it? The money's there. They just have to calculate it. They have to crunch the numbers. They have to do the math in order to tell you what's there. Well, in the same way, Paul here is commanding Christians to calculate what is true of us. To think rightly about our standing before God in Christ Jesus. In one sense, he's saying, do the math. Stop and consider what God has revealed to be true. It's a command to subjectively open your heart and your mind to what is objectively true. What is an objective reality? And what is that spiritual truth? What is that 
objective reality that he wants us to calculate, to consider. Well, there are two parts to it. And we see this as we break down the verb and attach it to both of those parts. First the negative and then the positive. Because of what God has done for us in salvation, because we are genuinely reconciled to Him, we are justified before Him, He says, consider yourself dead to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over a Christian. The power of sin has been broken in the person's life who has confessed his sin, turned from sin, and bowed to Jesus Christ as Lord. A Christian is no longer enslaved to sin. We see this in verse 6 of this chapter. Rather, a Christian is somebody who's been set free from sin, which is what verse 7 in this chapter says. So, we are, first of all, to consider that we are genuinely, actually, because of being rightly related to God through Christ, dead to sin. Get your mind around that, Paul says. Think about that. Take that to heart. Positively, he goes on, consider yourself alive to God. A Christian is somebody who knows God. Somebody who's been brought into the very family of God. Somebody who's now experiencing directly and personally the love that God has in Jesus Christ. So a Christian belongs to God. He is God's man. She is God's woman. And as a result, a Christian is able to live for God. Now, you know, it would be one of the cruelest things you could do if you went up to a person who is enslaved and said, hey, you ought to start living like a free man. He's a slave. But when a slave has been set free, then that's the right thing to say. Don't live like a slave anymore. Live like a free man. Why did the Israelites have to spend 40 years in the wilderness after God took them out of hundreds of years of Egyptian slavery? It's because they still had a slave mentality. They still fought like slaves. God showed them truth. God set it before them, told them to believe him, to act like his freed people. And they said, man, we had it better back in Egypt. Paul is understanding all of this about how salvation works and he's telling Christians having been justified to think rightly about your justification. Think rightly about what it means to be reconciled to God. It's fascinating that the first imperative in Romans doesn't tell Christians to do anything. Go do this. Or stop doing that. He's saying no. Rather. What I want you to do. Is to think rightly. Stop and consider. Meditate on what God reveals to be true. Concerning the realities that go with salvation. Calculate it. Factor it into your own sense of who you are. If you're trusting Jesus Christ. The scripture says you're dead to sin. The scripture says you're alive to God. 
And you might think, man, this morning I don't feel dead to sin. It seems like sin's just overwhelmingly. Well, it can feel like that. What's the antidote? What do you do? You need to come back to the word and you need to believe what God says. And then you need to go to war with your emotions and with your thinking and ask yourself this question. Am I going to believe what God says? Or am I going to believe what everything in me at times screams is true, but is contrary to what God says? Does it seem strange to you to talk like this, to to read this? Does this seem like a fantasy to you, some kind of word game? Well, look at the last three words in verse 11. Because here's the key. In Christ Jesus. Consider yourself dead to sin in Christ Jesus. Consider yourself alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? It means in union with Christ. Remembering, recognizing that you're not living in this world any longer on your own. But you are united to the Lord Jesus. It's fascinating. This is the first time, most likely, there's a possibility in chapter 5, verse 10. But this is the first clear time that Paul uses the actual phrase, in Christ. But he's been teaching about it all the way from chapter 5, verse 12, through now, in this part of Romans 6. His point is wanting Christians to recognize that we... Because of God's grace to us, because of faith, because of repentance, we are in Christ. This is one of Paul's favorite designations. Depending on how you count it, it's between like 140 and 200 times that he uses this in his New Testament writings. Christian is a person who has been, as verse 3 tells us, baptized into Christ Jesus. So, We are to consider ourselves dead to sin in Christ Jesus and consider ourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus because that's the truth. In Christ, what happened to him is it belongs to you. It's your experience through faith. What he experienced in death when he died to sin once for all, in him You have died to sin once for all. In Christ, as he conquered sin and death and came back from the dead, never to die again, in him, you have been made alive with God. These are realities. These are facts. And they are yours by faith. So brothers and sisters, when you think about yourself, and you think about your salvation, you need to think deeply, as deeply as the scripture warrants us here, what it means to be united to Christ in faith. You have taken on his identity. So the most important thing about you is not where you were born. It's not your education. It's not your income. Not your experience. It's not your ethnicity. It's not your marital status. The most important thing about a Christian is that he's in Christ. He has has the eternal son of God. Who has been united to him through faith. And that is more staggering, more mind-expanding than I'm convinced any of us have fully fathomed. And Paul here wants us to get on that road and consider it. You read back through verses 3 through 10 of this chapter and just see all the things that Paul says are true of those who are in 
Christ. Since those things are true, since they are genuine realities, you are dead to sin and alive to God. You must recognize this, believe this, live like this. Listen to what the late 19th century theologian James Denny had to say on this point. He writes, We may forget what we should be. We may also, and this is how Paul puts it, forget what we are. We are dead to sin in Christ's death. We are alive to God in Christ's resurrection. Let us regard ourselves in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the first realm of spiritual warfare that comes to you is the battle of the mind. It's the battle in your thinking. It's learning to take God at His word and to start considering what He says is true even when it doesn't feel true, when it doesn't seem true, when you have a thousand other voices telling you, no, 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 that's not quite right. Come back and see what does it mean to be justified before God. When you trusted Jesus Christ, your life changed forever. And you now have the opportunity to consider the truth. The truth about God. The truth about the world. The truth about Jesus and the truth about yourself. And to believe it. To be a Christian is to be turned from living in sin. It's to be turned to Jesus Christ in simple faith. Faith joins you to Christ. That's a fact. And in Christ, you have died to sin and you have been made alive to God. So Paul says, take that into consideration. Let that operate in your mind as you determine how you're going to spend your money and how you're going to spend your time and how you're going to talk to people and what you're going to do in making plans. Remember, remember who you are. This is precisely the way he argues in Colossians chapter 3. Let me just read to you the first few verses of that chapter, what he says to the Colossae church. If then you have been raised with Christ, which is what he's talked about in Romans 6, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the first way that justified people fight against sin and genuinely fight for holiness is by thinking rightly. Remembering who you are. The second thing we must do verses 12 and 13, is to engage actively. To engage actively. Look at the basic command in verse 12. It's another imperative. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Therefore, therefore, in light of what is true of you because you're in Christ and because you're remembering and counting on the fact that you're in Christ, don't allow sin to reign. That's what Paul is saying. Now, automatically, you see that he's not teaching here that when you become a Christian, sin vacates the premises of your life. Not at all. He, he, he acknowledges sin is still there. 
He is saying, don't let the sin that remains continue or begin to try once again to reign, to rule as it once did. You go back to chapter 5, verse 21, and Paul speaks about this reign of sin, the dominion of sin that we all used to be under before we were justified. And he says, don't go back that way. Don't start living as if that is still true because it is no longer true. Don't let this happen in your mortal body. It's interesting that he would use that word mortal, your body that is passing away. Why? Because it's not yet taking on immortality, as 1 Corinthians 15 says that it will one day when the Lord Jesus Christ himself returns. And then don't obey your sinful desires, passions, passions. What's he mean by that? Well, the word behind passion is just the word desire and Desires are not always sinful. There are many right and good desires that God has given to us as creatures made in his image and as those redeemed by Christ. But sinful desires are desiring what is evil and contrary to God's revelation of what's right, good, and true. So your desire to murder somebody, it's a sinful passion that he's talking about here. Your desire to steal something, well, that's one of these sinful passions that need to be put to death. But a desire, a passion can become sinful, even though it is fixated on that which is not itself inherently sinful. You see, you can have sinful desires not only by desiring what is evil and bad and wrong, but by desiring what is good in wrong ways. Desiring things that God has prescribed and tells us that we ought to desire, but in inordinate ways. So you can desire sex, which is good, but desire it outside of marriage or in your own self-fulfillment, which is evil. You can desire food, which is good, but desire it without self-control, which is bad and gives vent to gluttony. You can desire Sleep, which is good, but without a commitment to being diligent and redeeming the time and being productive. And if you do that, then you fall into sloth. You can desire safety and security, which are good, but you can do it to the neglect of faith and confidence in your God who always has your life in his hand. That's what Paul is telling us that we must turn away from, that we must put to death, that we must renounce. Look at the specific duties then as he lists them in verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. In other words, he's saying, don't present your faculties to sin. Don't give up your faculties to sin as weapons of wickedness. The word presents a wonderful word. It means to put at someone's disposal. Somebody needs to borrow your vehicle and you just hand them the keys. You're telling them to use it. It's at your disposal. He says, don't present your members. That word is most often used in the New Testament for parts of your body, like in 1 Corinthians 12, your foot, your hand. 
your ear, your nose. But it extends beyond that into all of your senses, to all of your faculties, to, as one translation puts it, every part of your being, all that you are. And then look at that word instruments, as instruments for unrighteousness or instruments for righteousness. That word is found five times in the New Testament. You know how it's translated the other four times? Weapons. Weapons. Paul, speaking of kingdoms, dominion, rule, weapons, he's thinking about spiritual warfare here. He's telling us that we have weapons that have been entrusted to us by God through the faculties that he's given to us. And he's saying, don't, don't give up your faculties to sin. Don't present your faculties to your enemy to be used against you. So negatively, he's saying, don't give up your feet, your hands, your tongue through gossip, lies. Your eyes, your words, your thoughts, your attitudes. Don't present those to sin so that they become weapons of unrighteousness to be used against you. Think rightly about who you are. Think about the capacities, the faculties that God's given to you. And positively present yourself to God. Put yourself at God's disposal as a person who's been brought back from death to life. Present to him all your faculties as weapons for righteousness. To grow in grace. To grow in holiness. To battle against sin. We do this as people who've been rescued from sin and death. We do this as if we were death row inmates that have received a pardon And now life is all grace because we should be dead and we have been given a stay of execution and have been given a complete pardon. So as a matter of stewardship, we must offer all that we have to what God has revealed to be right and good and true in Christ so that thereby all of our faculties can be harnessed in pursuing righteousness. In other words, with joy, with wonder, with thanksgiving, we are to offer up our lives knowing that God has saved us, He has given us life, and so we desire to live for Him. Brothers and sisters, this is a fundamental truth that we can never hear too much about. In Christ, you no longer are your own person. You have been bought At a price. You are the slave of Jesus Christ. And you are called upon to live with him, in him, and for him. Now Paul is going to go on later in this letter and elaborate this point. But just real quickly, flip over to chapter 12. Where you see he begins to make these applications. And he does it on the very premise that we're talking about found in our text. He says in verse 1 of Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Stop and ask yourself, Christian. 
Did I act like a living sacrifice to God yesterday? Offering up all that I am, all my faculties to Him. That's what Paul says. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't let the world shape the way you think, your values, what you judge to be important, your aspirations, but rather be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters, we must see this. We must feel this. We must remind ourselves and each other that that we belong to King Jesus. We are in service to Him. He saved us. He gave His life for us. He's the one who has reconciled us to God. And we now live and breathe in Him. We're dead to sin. We're alive to God. So we must present ourselves and all that we are to God and offer every faculty that we have as weapons in the spiritual war against sin and for righteousness. In the first installment of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Fellowship of the Ring, there's a council that is held at Elrond. And In that council, Frodo, the hobbit, proclaims that he is willing to take the ring and deliver it to the fires of Mordor. And after that declaration, his three friends present themselves to him. And Aragon says, if by my life or death I can protect you, I will. You have my sword. And Legolas says, And you have my bow. And Gimli says. And my axe. In other words. We present ourselves to you. To help you fulfill your mission. Whatever the cost. Brothers and sisters. That's how we are called to live. Before God. This is what Paul is telling us here. Present yourselves to God. All of your members. All of your faculties, all of your gifts, all of your resources, dedicate them to God in this fight against sin, in the fight for righteousness, in the extension of his kingdom. So let me just ask you something real pointedly this morning. If you're a Christian, have you consciously done what Paul tells us to do here? Have you consciously said, Lord, I present my hands to you. I present my feet to you. I present my eyes to you. My ears, my mind to you. I present my wealth to you. My strength to you. This is precisely what we're called upon to do. And if you don't see this and you're not giving yourself to living this way, then you need to do some deep business with God. And ask if you have come to grips with what God's done for you in Christ and how He has saved you from sin. He purchased you. He's rescued you. And that your life now is hidden in Christ. and You're in Him. That 
what he accomplished belongs to you and all that you are is because of him. Present yourselves to God. This is how we're called to live. We do this because he has saved us. Brothers and sisters, you will not accidentally fight against sin. You will not accidentally resist it. You will not accidentally grow in holiness. You must intentionally, deliberately fight for holiness. Offer yourself to God. Commit yourself to His provisions for your growth in grace. Sometimes I think Christians get the wrong idea that we need some kind of zapping in order to make us holy. You know, if I could just get this or have this or experience this, and God has provided a feast for us. But it's a feast that we very often look at and turn our noses up because we don't recognize what a bounty it is. A feast that includes His actual Word. We have the words of the living God in Scripture. Isn't it crazy that we would not read the Bible? Isn't it crazy? God's given us His words. He speaks to us in Scripture. He's he's given us His church so that we don't live this Christian life by ourselves. And yet I tell you, I'm weary of talking to people who claim to be Christians and think they can live the Christian life outside of covenanted relationships in a church. You're turning your nose up at what God's provided for your day in, day out spiritual welfare and fighting sin and growing in grace. You think about the Lord's Supper. He's given us this regular opportunity to stop and remember what His Son has done for us. Yet there are Christians, you know them, you may be one of them. You think you can go without eating the Lord's Supper and it's no big deal. Or you think that a church ought to serve it to you whenever you have a whim that it fits your schedule. God has provided this for us. This is a way we grow. This is how we fight against sin. We fight for holiness. This is how we present ourselves to God. Well, if we're going to engage in this way, we must think rightly. We must engage actively and we must finally, in verse 14, just trust simply. Trust by taking God at His word. Look at that verse. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. This is encouragement for our considering and our offering. Paul is saying, I want you to think this way. I want you to engage this way so that sin will not have dominion over you. He tells us that's the case. After after giving us a series of commands in verses 11, 12, and 13, He turns back to an indicative statement in verse 14 in order to encourage and motivate us. And what does he say? What is the truth that is laid down here that we are to stand upon? Well, notice that it begins with a little word for. So he's saying, think this way, engage this way because, because this is the foundation of your thinking and of your living, your presenting, your engaging. 
And he states it as a promise. It's stated in the future tense, but he's not just talking about something that's going to happen out there. He's talking about something that has reality in the present tense, where we are now. Sin will not have the rule over you. Sin will not have dominion over you. It's a fact. You think, well, it feels like it some days. Well, yeah, it still lives within you. It still remains, but it no longer reigns. That's a fact. He's given us a theological truth there. And then in the latter part of verse 14, he gives us the reason this is true. Sin will not have dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. What's he mean by that? You've been justified before God. You're not trying to relate to God on the basis of his law anymore. You're not trying to obey your way into his good graces. Which is the only hope you had before he declared you to be righteous. He considered you righteous. He imputed righteousness to you for Christ's sake. See, before you became a Christian, you had to look to God as the lawgiver, see his commandments as being high, holy, and your only hope that God would ever receive you is if you could measure up to his commandments. And if you're honest, you know you have never measured up to his commandments on your best day. Why? Because his commandments are so good, so high, and sin is so wicked. Sin has left us crippled, unable to do what God's commanded us to do. Paul says, that's not the way you are anymore. You're not under law. You don't have to try to somehow work your way up to God. You don't look at those commandments as a ladder that you try to climb up to get to God. That was a dead end. The law was never given to sinners to justify them. But now, you're under grace. You're under grace. Grace that has come to us in Jesus Christ. Come to us not because we've done anything, not because we deserve it, but because God is a God of grace. He sent His Son into the world. And His Son kept those commandments perfectly. And then His Son willingly laid down His life on the cross to pay for the sin of lawbreakers like you and me. And as we turn from sin, we trust Christ. That grace of God in Christ comes to us and we're justified before Him forever. We're forgiven of sin. We're reconciled to him. We're made new people. Why? Because we did something? No. Because of grace. That's why sin will not have dominion over you. It's because you have been set free from ever trying to be good enough for God. You have been put in this realm over here where you know God's for you. You know you're reconciled to him. You know that on your worst day, you're not beyond His grace. On your best day, you're not beyond the need of His grace. Because He loves you. He's for you. He accepts you on the basis of His Son. You're under grace. Oh, this is a glorious truth. The way of life of trying to relate to God on the basis of what we think is good and right, trying to be good enough for Him, it's futile. If you're honest and you've lived that way or you're living that way now, you have to admit it, don't you? I mean, maybe you don't admit it to anybody else, but 
When you're alone at night and you're putting your head on the pillow and you're about to go to sleep and you think about God, you think about death, you think about eternity. And you wonder, have I been good enough? Have I done enough? And you, you have to confess, I, I, I haven't. I haven't. I know I haven't. It's a horrible way to live. And you don't have to keep living that way. God sent His Son into the world to do everything necessary so that you might turn from sin, trust Him, and come under His grace. Experience forgiveness. Experience reconciliation. Being made right with your Creator. Oh, Jesus Christ is God's grace to sinners who trust Him. Friend, you've never trusted Jesus before today trust him now you don't have to jump through hoops you don't have to turn over a new leaf you have to just believe what God says acknowledge that on your own trying to build yourself up before God you'll never have his acceptance because you're a sinner. You've rebelled against Him. Your sin keeps you from com com completing the commandments that He has given to us. You can't do it. But confessing that to God, where you are, even right now, just in your heart, in your mind, saying, God, I've shattered your commandments. I cannot be good enough for you, but there's grace. I want to be under grace, and your Son has come as a gift of grace to all who trust Him. I trust Him. Just trust Him now. Just call Him Lord now. Receive Him. He will accept you. God will reconcile you to Himself. You will be justified forever. And you can get off that treadmill of self-help and trying to do better and do better and do better in hopes that God might be pleased with you. You can look to His Son and say, God is pleased with me. God accepts me. I have been reconciled to Him not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. That's grace. Brothers and sisters, we who have been rescued from sin are now under that grace. Remember it. Believe it. Preach it to yourself. God loves you. He accepts you. He is for you all because of Jesus. So offer yourself to Him. Offer all of your faculties to Him. Set Him before His disposal that He might do with you whatever He wants to do with you. And you'll find yourself turning from sin and growing in holiness. Sinclair Ferguson, one of my favorite preachers and writers, Scottish theologian, summarizes pastoral ministry quite well as he tries to help us think, what, what is the bottom line of all of our efforts to help people really know God and enjoy God? And this is what he says. There are actually only two pastoral problems you will ever encounter. The first is this. Persuading those who are under the dominion of sin. That they are under the dominion of sin. Really. That's evangelism. So if you are here this morning. You're not trusting Christ. Then one of the greatest challenges I have as a pastor. Is to convince you. That you are being dominated. You're being owned. By sin. He, he, he gets that right. But he goes on, he says, the second is this. It's persuading those who are no longer under the dominion of sin that they are no longer under the dominion of sin 
because they are Christ's. Brothers and sisters, that's the great burden and challenge for this congregation. Is to convince you that sin no longer has dominion over you. To convince you that you have died to sin. You've been made alive to God. And that as such, you now are able freely to offer up your life. All that you are in service to God. No longer having to serve sin but now seeking to grow in holiness by offering up all of your faculties in service to righteousness. Oh, may God help us. May God help us as a church to believe these things, to remember them, to remind each other of them so that we might come more and more to know His joy, His grace, His provisions that are found for us in Christ. Let's pray together.